This message was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. Let's listen to the Word of God from our Sunday morning service. To open up the Word of God with you today and encourage you and point you to Christ. And as we have just seen through this video, um, a famous hymn, the Lord went through much, you know, this week, over 2,000 years ago. But man, at the end of that video, what did we see? We saw a Savior who took his breath, and he is alive, he is risen, he is risen indeed, and we have come here today to celebrate this fact that Christ is alive, and he is so alive, and I want him to be real in your life as he is in mine, and I encourage you, church, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ right now. And although we are still in this somewhat difficult and frustrating season of life, uh, many things have taken place in our church, and I, I just want to encourage you and just say thank you to all the church members who are fighting, who are serving, who are giving, who are praying. Many of you are engaged in member care, and I love hearing the reports. I love hearing the requests. I love hearing and still seeing that ministry is taking place, and, and that's you. You're, you're doing that. You're being part of the body of Christ, and you're loving your, your brother and sister in Christ, and you're loving your neighbor as yourself, and that's powerful. That's powerful. That's a powerful proclamation to the world and to the evil one, Satan, that because of this virus, it's not going to stop the church. It's not going to stop us or the church in proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, thank you for your prayers, for your sacrifice. And man, your intentionality with your faith. You are honoring God. And I, I, we don't say that lightly. We don't take that lightly. You are honoring God, our Father. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for just this opportunity. Praise the Lord for you. Praise the Lord for, again, my, my brothers and sisters at Covenant Baptist Church. God has given us a season of life together for, for us many years, for us recently but we're doing this thing together. I need your help. We, we need your help. And we need your help right now to pray and ask the Lord to show up in my life, in your life, in the lives of those who don't know him. Amen. And so today is Resurrection Sunday. And my goal today is just simply this. We're going to engage into the biblical text in Matthew and talk about the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I also want to confess to you that we need help. We need God to give us the faith right now because we can't, we can't depend on ourselves. We can't do this alone. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives right now. So I'm asking you to, to say a quick prayer for yourself, for, for, for the family members in your home, for those watching and live stream right now. Ask God to protect us from the evil one. Okay? You know, death is the great equalizer. It's no respecter of persons. In every case, there's always pain. Every case, there's always pain. Everyone here in this room and watching live stream, you know this. You, you know this. And unfortunately, to some degree, you, you felt the effects of death. 
What does that do? It leaves you empty. It leaves you confused, hurt, and sometimes alone. And we know this is part of the curse of death. It's painful and it's real for so many of us. And even sometimes it keeps us up at night. We have to deal with this reality. We're not immortal. When we die, in one sense, that's, that's it. You know, when you think about this, I think this is what the disciples had in mind over 2,000 years ago. When they're engaging with the Lord Jesus Christ, they knew, they knew if he died, that's it. They knew if Jesus died, that would be it. No one has ever defeated death, and no one has ever died, or no one has ever died has come back to life on their own. Those things just don't happen. You know, hypothetically, by, by, by show of hands, if all of us had a medical background in either nursing, nursing or, or doctoring, how many of us would be willing to go to New York or to, to some other hotspot right now that has the virus and work with patients who have it? I mean, that's crazy. Even for $5,000 a week, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't go to New York and, and work with patients who have it. Because I'll be risking my life, and I'll be risking the life of my, my family and my kids and my wife. Why would I do something like that? It's just a suicide. No one in their right mind would put themselves in harm's way unless it's your job. And we thank you, all of our healthcare workers who are serving. But, but who in their right mind is willing to die or put themselves in harm's way? You know, Jesus did. Jesus did. And Jesus knew his time has come. And he knew this. He must die. And although the disciples didn't want this, Jesus believed in the plan of God. He, he must finish the mission. The son must die. And so it was on this day over 2,000 years ago, the greatest miracle to ever take place on this earth. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, was resurrected from the grave, and he is alive. He's done it. He's defeated death, the grave, and Satan, as we were just saying and read from the Scriptures, and we're encouraged for our brothers. There's hope. Man, there is hope. And this is the reason why you're here this morning, gathering together to celebrate this special day, Resurrection Sunday. The hope for you and for me is this miracle. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And he is reigning with his Father this very minute. He's not in a coffin, he's not in a tomb. And so the, the title for my sermon this morning is this, Our Hope for Life After Death, An Empty Tune and the Resurrection of the King. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and continue and turn to Matthew 27. We're, we're going to be finishing up, you know, the, the, almost finish up the passion narrative and we're going to be talking about the greatest miracle to ever take place on this day 2,000 years ago. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, where we're going to begin in verse 57. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. 
Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it on his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone uh, to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and, and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. They go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples and behold, Jesus met them, and he said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And, said to, and Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and, and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and asked them, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Our Father and our most gracious God, Today's the day. This is Super Bowl Sunday for us, the church, as we are loudly proclaiming here at Covenant, Lord, in our city, and across the United States, and across the world, that today the, the risen Lord, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, is in, he's alive. He is alive. And that means he is who he says he is. And that means he is the great teacher, the prophet, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is everything that the scripture has been, been talking about. Today's the day where we get to celebrate this fact together as a church on Resurrection Sunday. And Lord, this is your day. It's not ours. We, we, are, we, are willingly, we are humbly submitting to you and asking you, Father, to work in our hearts right now and protect us from the evil one and sin. God, some of us have engaged in, in, in a lifestyle of sin recently, and we're feeling the effects of it. But God, right now, protect us. 
Use, use your power, the Holy Spirit, Lord, to prevent, to, to, to prevent the evil one from working in our hearts right now. Give us faith. Give, give us hope. Help us, to, help us to hear the gospel message and, and love that above ourselves. Gaging in fear. I'm praying for them right now, Father, that you give them faith to believe, to hold fast to the Son and, and trust in you. And Lord, here's the hope that we have as Christians. Our bodies are just a vessel. And if we are in Christ, the story of the resurrection story of Jesus Christ is also for me and for you. Do we have hope after death? We do. Because King Jesus lives. And we pray all these things in Christ's most holy and precious name. Amen. And so there... He hung. The king of the Jews. All he had to do was say one thing, and 12 legions of angels would show up and vindicate him. But he didn't. As a silent lamb, he didn't. Instead, Jesus endured the wrath of God until he was, as what Isaiah says, completely crushed. Last week, we were reminded by Pastor Jason for. Uh, for us to focus on the son's obedience. Do you remember what we saw? In his obedience, what did the son of God do? He suffered. He endured. And he hung on a tree to die, never wavering from the plan of God and clinging to faith and to his father. From noon to about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, the Son of God slowly, intentionally, and painfully endured the wrath of God as a sinful man. And that's significant. Because this is what a true king does. He endures, he suffers, and he dies for his very own. You know what? Although he remains silent for mostly throughout this entire narrative, we, we do we do have an account of some of his final words while he was on the cross. Now, let me remind you about what Jesus said from the Gospels. In John, while he was dying, Jesus cares for his mother. And he says, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. Then possibly minutes or even seconds before he dies, Jesus says, this, I thirst. And John concludes, and Jesus says this, it is finished. And Luke, he says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even as Jesus is dying, he cries out to God for mercy over his enemies. And then in the final scenes of his life, in Luke's account, Jesus says two things. First, to the criminal, truly I say to you, and remember, this, this criminal had faith. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And the last thing, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In the final moments of Jesus' life, he speaks. And what he says, he both saves and dies for the enemies of God. And then lastly, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus says this, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He experienced it all. Pain, anguish, emptiness, rejection, desolation, abandonment, hatred, and a wicked death. And while all of this is taking place, the king is at work. He's literally saving you and me. Jesus, as Matthew tells us at the beginning of his gospel, the name Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. How? By becoming sin. He is the Lamb of God. And so what happens? On Good Friday, the sun dies. And it seems like all hope is loss. Death has seemingly won once again. But as we were reminded this Friday, man, Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. And, and I think we must come to realization of this, that Jesus died. He had to die. Why? Because if he didn't die, then the miracle of the resurrection is a hoax. It's either a fictional story and a lie, or it's true. And so as we return back to our text, we're going to break this section up into four sections. The first, the king is placed in a tomb. Second, the scandal of man. Third, the king is resurrected. He lives. And fourth, the false narratives. Let's return to the first section. The king is placed in a tomb in verse 57 and 61. For the last two chapters, Matthew has paid close attention to the last day of Jesus' life. I mean, do you remember how it started? After the Lord's Supper meal, what happens? It begins with a betrayal and a kiss of a friend. At the end of that day, what happens? The Lord Jesus dies. In less than 24 hours, the Son of God has endured everything from the betrayal of friends, the unjust trials, the mockeries, the beatings, the hammering of nails in his hand and feet on a bloody cross. And what's the end result? The end result is simply this. The king has died. In verse 57, the, she, the, the, the scene shifts from a horrific death that we saw prior to now the reality of his death. Remember, if there is no death, then the power of the resurrection is a hoax. And while the reality of Jesus' death is still intensely debated today, Matthew, along with the other gospel writers, give us the evidence to believe so, friend, you can either choose to ignore the evidence or by faith and by the power of God, you can believe. Matthew carefully and methodically shows us the reality that Jesus has died here. He does so in at least three ways. And they are this. First, he uses the testimony of Joseph of Arimathea. Second, he uses the order or the testimony of Pilate. And third, he refers or uses the testimony of both Mary's. And a comment on, on the first two testimonies. The first two are tied together. Following the death of Christ, what does, what does Joseph do? He makes a request to Pilate. In verses 57 and 58, Joseph requests for what? The dead body of Jesus. Two things are important here. First, Jesus' dead body has been taken down from the cross in accordance with the law. The, the, the religious elite knew this. In Deuteronomy 21, the, the, the scriptures say this, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, underline that word there, and he is put to death, 
and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You know, the religious leaders in one sense confirm Christ's death by having his body taken down from the tree. His body's no longer hanging there because it's been at least pronounced that this man's dead. He is dead. There's no point in keeping them on the cross. He's a cursed man. Take him down. Let's bury him and move on. The second thing, Pilate grants the release of Jesus' dead body to Joseph. And here, both testimonies do simply help us in understanding this. They, they confirm that Jesus has died. The, testi- the testimony of Joseph is, is really an interesting one. It's one of many key evidences that, that confirm the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, each, each gospel references Joseph and his response to Jesus' death. We know from the gospels that Joseph is a religious man. Man, excuse me. He's part of the religious council, the, the, the Sanhedrin. But what do the gospel writers tell us? There's something different about Joseph. Something has happened to him. Joseph has been changed by Jesus. In the latter part of verse 57, Matthew tells us what? Joseph is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel has penetrated his heart. And even a man from the Sanhedrin council has saving faith. And notice two things about Joseph. First, Matthew describes him as a wealthy man. And second, Joseph owns something that's interesting. He owns a tomb, which would have been for the burial of himself or family members, but he owns a tomb. And instead of using it for his family members or himself, he uses it for the Lord Jesus Christ. This here is another allusion to an Old Testament prophecy found in Isaiah 53, this suffering servant passage. Or passage, excuse me. You know, all throughout Matthew's gospel, what has he been clearly doing? He's been showing us Jesus fulfills prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Not only does he show us the righteousness of the king, but he shows us that Jesus is indeed the Messiah because he fulfills the prophecies that were foretold hundreds and thousands of years ago. And we have another allusion here in Isaiah 53, 9, where in many of our English texts, it probably reads something like this, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You know what's interesting? In the manuscripts from an amazing discovery, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the passage is written slightly different there. And I think it's interesting that we we need to note this. Peter Gentry, one of the Old Testament profound scholars of this day, he translates Isaiah 53 this way. From the manuscripts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but his tomb was with the rich. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. A subtle change, church. But man, what a difference. What a difference. Another prophecy is fulfilled in here through the death of the suffering servant. 
Although this prophecy was foretold hundreds and almost thousands of, a thousand years ago, what does this prophecy show us? God is in control, and he has been from the very beginning. Nothing is out of his hands. Or out, nothing is out of his hands. He is sovereignly in control. And later we're told the tomb is, is sealed with a massive stone. You know, and the reason why they did that was not only to keep the dead body in there, right? But during this time in this culture, you know, grave robbers were, were a common thing. And Joseph, being of a wealthy class, you know, grave robbers saw an opportunity with an open tomb to go in there and take the items of, of family members who are, you know, paying homage to their dead loved one. And so the stone is sealed to do a couple things, to keep Jesus' dead body in there and protected, but also keep out the grave robbers. Again, another sign. This man is dead. And then the last testimony. The last testimony we have of the two Marys found in verse 61. What do they do? Both Marys arrive at the tomb of Jesus later that Friday evening, not to celebrate his life, but to pay homage to his death. They seek to pay their respects for the crucified Lord by honoring his dead body with fragrances and reminding themselves he was once with us. He was once alive, but here his, his dead body is lay, laid right in front of us. And so they pay homage to him. You know, the testimony of Joseph, of Pilate, and Mary, of both Mary, excuse me, each give evidence to the fact that the king has died. And the one piece of evidence as the clearest picture of Christ's actual death is that tomb and the placement of his body in it. You know, Joseph takes Jesus' body, and what does he do? He wraps his body, and he places the dead body of Christ in a tomb, because that is what a, that's, that's the function of a tomb. You don't go there and celebrate life. You go there to, to, to keep the dead buried there. And so, in our first scene, we, we have a vivid reminder The king is buried in a tomb. The Sunday is coming. Next, we had the scandal of man found in verse 62 and 66. Again, the the, the chief priests are at the center of our focus once again. In the second to last picture, before Matthew finishes his his gospel, we, we have the religious elite. And what are they doing? They're doing what they uh, they're doing what they've been known to do throughout the gospel. They're, they're engaging again in wickedness. And here we have another scandal from man. Remember, the Pharisees have accepted their fate and they have chosen to indulge in darkness and have gotten the Son of God killed. Through scandal after scandal after scandal. And here, once again. They do what they do best. They lie, steal, and cheat. In verse 62, it helps us set the stage. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. 
Friday has come and gone. And now it's the last day of the week. It's Saturday. It's the Sabbath. The holiest day of the week. And unlike Joseph, who in the previous section, who sought to honor the dead body of Christ, the Pharisees seek to dishonor Jesus' dead body, even in his death. And once again, we see the scandal of man in several ways, which is found in verses 63 and 64. First, listen to the arrogance of the religious elite. Jesus is dead, but, but still they mock him. And how do, identi- how do they identify him? They identify him as an imposter, slandering him, mocking him, and he's dead. He's not the Messiah. He's a fake one. He's a fake king. Second, the religious elite, they double down, which you see in the latter part of 63 and 64. They remember the words of Jesus and focus on the misquote of him at the trial. After three days, I will rise and seek to keep the tomb. Or, and after three days, I will rise. And what do they do? They, they seek to keep the, the tomb secured and sealed. R.T. France says this in his commentary on Matthew. You know, the authorities fear focus, explicitly at least, not on the possibility that Jesus might actually rise from death, but on the opportunity for his disciples to cash in on such language to stage a fake resurrection. Mm. Such hatred, such scandal. And on the Sabbath day, instead of choosing to worship God, they engage in sin by manipulating the story and trying to control the narrative. They create yet another lie, and they form a story to not only attack King Jesus, but also his disciples. Remember the disciples? Yeah, we, we remember them. They're the ones who completely, completely deserted Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet the, the Pharisees believe that the disciples are capable of creating a lie made up in their imagination. Imagine that. I mean, isn't that ironic? Their hypocrisy here is seen in their storytelling. They believe the cowards, the disciples of Jesus Christ, will take his body and proclaim a false narrative. Oh my goodness, that is insane. They believe Jesus' disciples will lie, steal, and spread the lie to the people. And the irony here is this. They are the ones who are spreading the lies concerning Jesus' death. They they are the ones doing it. Jesus was right when he said, or when he identified them in John 8, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's the Pharisees. They participate in once again another scandal made up in their own mind, in their own imagination. And lastly, in verse 65 and 66, Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. After they had this dialogue and, and creating a false narrative, Pilate continues, Go, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. 
and says, setting a guard. The Pharisees seek to overpower God's plan. And so what do they do? They send their soldiers to the tomb in order to keep the Son of God there in the tomb, which is a symbol of death. Why? It's not because they believe that he's alive, but it's because they believe that he is dead. And ironically, their fear is misplaced on their own life. Mm. Such darkness, such wickedness, such intentionality to sin. And it's easy for us to pick on them. It's easy for us to focus on the religious elite and pick on them. But what about you? What kind of scandal are you engaging right now? Where, where is your heart right now? Are you trying to protect and preserve your kingdom? Or are you willing to submit to God? Are you praying for your brother and sister? Are you choosing to love your brother and sister? Are you choosing to encourage your brother? What are you doing with your life? What, what, what are you trying to do with, with uh, your entire life? Are you living for yourself? Or are you living for the king? But Sunday is coming. The Pharisees, Satan, and sin will not have the last laugh. Sunday is coming, and oh man, what a day to remember. The third scene, the king is resurrected and he lives, found in chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. You know, throughout Matthew's gospel, we've, we've been seeing Jesus at work. He's performed miracle after miracle. He's healed many from sicknesses and diseases and disabilities. Jesus has calmed a storm and on two occasions, he's fed over 5,000 people and another over 4,000 people. Jesus has supernaturally performed many miracles. And surely, he can't top these, right? Surely, he can't top all of these. But he does. The Father works, and Sunday is finally here. And what takes place on this day over 2,000 years ago has and will forever be the church's picture of hope, redemption, and grace. Jesus is not here. He is risen. This is Resurrection Sunday, and the king has returned. The king is not dead. He is alive, and he's alive and well. If there's ever a time to shout, church, the time is now. The time is now to rejoice. And here we see the scene of the king's resurrection and the power of God. In verse 1 of chapter 28, where we set the stage, Matthew helps sets the stage for us. Now after Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Two things. First, it's the start of a new week. And second, we have the witness of our dear sisters, both Marys. That's, that's, that's still relevant to today. It's still relevant for us today. But notice this. Holy week has come and gone. But a new week has begun. This is the first day of the new week. It's the first day of the new week. Jesus is indeed the firstborn of new creation because no one 
has ever defeated death. But Jesus has. Jesus has. Sure, we have the story of Lazarus. Lazarus, excuse me. But you know, even Lazarus died twice. And he remained dead the second time. You know, when when Lazarus' tombstone was found, the inscription on his tomb read this. Lazarus, four days dead, friend of Christ. Two things. He makes reference to his first death, and we know by the evidence he is dead. But this is Sunday. Jesus has done it. Man, he's done it. He's alive and he's conquered the grave. This is the day of redemption, church. And this is, this is God not letting the evil one win. Jesus took the, the place of a guilty sinner like you and, and me. And what did he do? He offered up his life as a pleasing sacrifice to God the Father. And we know from the Old Testament story, it was a pleasing aroma to God. The Son of God has once and for all paid the penalty of sin. We don't have to go back and practice the old covenants. We don't have to trust in ourselves. We, we don't have to do the things that are now obsolete. Because of Jesus' vindication, the plan of redemption for you and for me has been accomplished. The King of kings and Lord of lords has returned, and the grave could not hold him any longer. Listen to our dear brothers Peter and Paul. And their comments about the resurrection. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all. That that those who live might might no longer live for themselves. But for him. For their sake died and was raised. Later in 17 he says this. Therefore if anyone is in Christ. Paul says this, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And let's stop there for a second. And friends, the the significance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ centers on that. that. That sin has been dealt with once and for all. And that the reality of having a clean conscience of having a a clean heart, of having a righteousness as an alien righteousness that's that's not our own is accomplished because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means when we stand before God, we will not be judged. We will never be judged because the king is alive. And Paul continues, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to him and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is In Christ, God was reconciling the world for himself or to himself, not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. I love that language and I love that picture there. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 
Both apostles view the, view the resurrection of Christ as the defining moment for their faith and our faith. If this miracle didn't take place, and as Pastor Jason said earlier, nothing else matters. This is a joke. This is a hoax. This is all a lie. But the impossible has been made possible. Jesus is alive, and as the gospel writers describe him, he is the beginning of the new creation. We'll elaborate later on the presence or the significance of the presence of both Marys. But let's return back to verses 2 through 7. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing like white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled, became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you so. Verse 2 begins with a bang. And while the earthquake reminds us of God's judgment in the previous section of the sun enduring much, enduring the wrath of God, here the earthquake functions more as a pronouncement. It functions as a pronouncement and a proclamation from the angel of the Lord. This scene is not like the angel appearing to Joseph in the beginning of the gospel where he appeared to Joseph in a dream. Rather here, this scene is a loud, powerful, and earth-shattering proclamation. Jesus is alive. France continues and says this, the removal of the stone of Jesus' tomb is attributed not to the earthquake, but to the direction of the angel. Matthew's connective four suggests that the quake itself is the result of the angel's coming. And what is he doing? He has a message. The angel has come down from heaven and he has, he has an announcement to make. Notice Matthew's description of the angelic being. It's like lightning, which, which his appearance there personifies the power of God. And his clothing, and his clothing what is it like? It's, it's as white as snow, which is a picture of the supernatural messenger here. This is no ordinary message. This is the proclamation for all time that must be told to everyone. The king is alive. The hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not in a dead savior. It's, in, it's rather in a savior who is alive, who is breathing, who talks, who, spe who engages, who has feet, who has hands, who has scars. And he has blood in his veins that was shed for you and for me. And in this section, notice, notice the response of the two groups. Notice the guards and the women found in verses 4 through 8. You know, the plan of the religious lead, as we referenced earlier, was to control the narrative of Jesus' death. But notice their plan. During, during Holy Week and the weekend of Holy Week, it only lasted one day. That Their plan was overcome by the power of God. In verse 4, the guards are overwhelmed. They are exposed. They have seen and 
felt the awesome power of God by this angel. And how does Matthew describe the response of, uh, of the guards? They faint. They pass out like they're dead men. The fear has stricken them, and they respond as if they are dead. The power and scandal of man cannot overcome the power and grace of God. God controls the story. God controls redemption. God will not now or ever be defeated because the Son lives. Next, we have the message from the angel of the Lord. And while the, guard, while the guards are passed out, listen again to the message from the angel. He tells the women to not be afraid. And he makes sure they understand this. Jesus, who was crucified, he is not here, for he is risen. Come and see, his body is not here. And go, tell the disciples who were in Galilee this message. He not only remains the message of the king's resurrection, but notice what the angel does. He connects both events. He connects the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ together. They're both the same coin. You can't have one without the other. The reason why we're celebrating here today is because both events took place on that dreadful weekend 2,000 years ago. But Sunday has come. Hope is alive. Hope once again has breath in his lungs. Hope has a new body. Hope is the new resurrection, or excuse me, hope is the new creation seen in the resurrection of his new body. And here in this section, we have three pictures, you know, confirming or he's giving evidence that, that Christ has been resurrected from the grave. First is the pronouncement of the angel. Second, the stone is supernaturally rolled away through the earthquake. And third, when you go in that tomb, there is no body. A body is not present there and the tomb is empty. The absence of Jesus' body gives evidence to the reality of the resurrection. The message from the angel can be summarized in this way. The king is alive. Go and spread the news to the gospel. Tell them he will reunite back with them in Galilee. Where if you remember, the disciples go there in defeat. Lack of faith and disbelief. But listen to the response of the women in verse 8. What do they do? They obey. Such an elementary word. At least I remember learning this as a kid. Trust and obey. But as we were reminded last week, the son's obedience has significant impact on my life and your life and the life of Jesus' disciples here. The women obey. And what do they do? I love this scene. I've never seen anything like this in the Bible, at least the response of somebody. I mean, there are other responses. I'm, I probably shouldn't have said that. But this, the, the response here, I love it. They run like they have never run before. Matthew describes it as what? Both, both running in fear and joy. I've never run that way before. Their, 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 their emotions can't contain themselves. I've run a half marathon. I can tell you this. I was not enjoying it. I was in pain. But these women, the disciples of Jesus Christ, they, they have seen a miracle. 
They can't believe what they have just seen, and they run. They can't explain it. All they know is we have to listen to this angel because the king is alive. Imagine the adrenaline. Imagine their hope is restored. Imagine their faith now at an all-time high. It's confirmed. He is the Messiah. He did it. And they go, and they're, they're, they're traveling to deliver the message to Jesus' best friends. I mean, imagine their conversation, but both of Mary's. Mary, Jesus is alive. Can you believe it? He is alive. He told us this would happen. I mean, can you believe it? It is unbelievable. And in the final sections of this scene in verse 9 and 10, there is more evidence that Matthew gives us that testify to the miraculous event. Look at what Matthew says, what he describes in verse 9 and 10. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Insane. Just hey. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. He speaks to his friends. He shows up, and Jesus simply just says, hello. And in our language, probably, hey, how's it going, guys? Not only does he speak, Matthew gives us a picture that he is physically alive. He responds, and he shows up to the women, and he says, hey. But not only do we have the words from a risen Lord, we also have his feet as well. The description of the woman's response gives us evidence of two things. First, Jesus is not a ghost. In the ancient world, it was believed that spirits did not have flesh, which would mean they would not have feet. And so if Jesus was a ghost, there would not be an account of his feet being present there as the women worship. And second, second, Jesus does have flesh. He's back. He did it. He's really back. The very presence of Jesus reassures the women of the reality of his return. The king is alive. And there really is no reason to be afraid. There's no reason to be afraid. And did you notice what what Jesus says to his friends? He tells the women, deliver the message to my brothers. And man, that's a picture of redemption. What a picture of grace to know that even in their lowest and darkest moments of life, Jesus chooses to love and to forgive them. And he calls them brothers. He's not finished with them. He's not finished with me. He's not finished with you. He's not finished with the church. He loves them. He loves me. He loves you. And we have a mesh and we have a mission. We have a message to proclaim. The message and the power of the resurrection of the risen Christ is real. And the disciples, the cowards, as we described earlier, they are the ones who are going to be in the front lines announcing it. The picture of redemption for for sinners and weaklings like like the disciples. And in reality, that's that's me and you. That's, That's me and you. And I know we're coming back on time, but we have the last scene, which is the false narrative found in verses 11 and 15. 
In the final scene for this morning, Matthew reminds us of something that we were introduced, you know, in the second section or second scene where, where we had the scandal of man. The final and lasting image of the religious fleet in Matthew's gospel perfectly betrays him. What are they doing? They pick up where they left off. They suppress the truth by covering it with a lie. In verse 15, it ends with a chilling reminder. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Their lie, think about this church, has damned the lives of so many. And we still see the effects of it to this day. How many Jews have refused to believe the truth over this lie? How many Gentiles have refused to believe the truth over this lie? Countless. Think of the lives. Think of the souls. Think of the damage that has been done because of one group's lust for power. And so this then concludes, in, in, in some ways, this concludes the passion narrative. Well, we have still one more scene to discuss for next week. But there are a couple of things that we need to keep in mind on this day. First, we have to think. We have to respond. And so, my friend, I have to ask you this question. What do you believe about the resurrection? You know, depending on what you believe, it will have huge, if not major, implications on your life. I mean, if you choose to disbelieve, or if you choose to act in disbelief, you you suppress the power of the risen king, and you continue to act and respond in sin. But what if you believe? What if you believe? You experience the resurrecting power of Jesus. You experience the transformation of new life. And so where are you? I mean, you have to check your heart. We've been talking about this all morning. You have to check your heart and understand what you believe about the resurrection is directly tied to what you believe about faith. And so I encourage you, do business with God today. And so think about that. The scriptures tell us all throughout the old and the new, King Jesus fulfills everything that the Father has given to him. And the resurrection is, like what Michael said, the hinge pin, the, the, the final piece to show he is who he says he is. So what do you believe about the resurrection? And second, I just want to encourage you, church, if you do believe, then you have the power of the resurrection inside of you. Jesus is no longer dead. And the hope that we have for life after death is secured in the Son. Romans 6 says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we would die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive. And I think that alive there, again, is a picture of the power of the resurrection. Be alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian, church, 
the power, the greatest miracle to ever take place on that day, Resurrection Sunday, is inside of you. It's inside of you. And through the Spirit of God, you can do everything. You can defeat sin. You can live in faith. You can obey the law of God. You can show the world who you follow. Jeremiah 31 says this, For this is a new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Philippians 3, Paul continues, says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In verse 10, listen to this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share and his sufferings becoming like him in his death. You know what's a picture, uh, you know, a practical picture for us of, of the power of the resurrection of Christ? If you are suffering right now in any form or fashion, and you're clinging on to the Son, and you're trusting and believing him, preferring him over everything, you are demonstrating to yourself, to your family, to the world, you believe this gospel. Paul did that. He didn't quit. He believed that knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection was more than anything, was worth more than anything. And so, what do you believe about a resurrection? Church, encourage yourself and understand that because we are united to Christ, we can live in the power of the resurrection. And then lastly, third, I mean, what story are you spreading? What kind of story are you spreading? Are you spreading the truth or a lie? And we need to do business with the Lord today. He, he forgave his best friends, even his darkest moments, and he called them brothers. So if, you're, if there's a story that you're spreading that's contrary to the gospel, seek forgiveness. And let me close with this. Love came down from heaven and was born in a manger. Grace is seen as the sin of the Son of God dies on the cross for sinners like you and me. Hope is an empty tomb, but the king is not there. He is risen. Our hope for life after death are these things, an empty tomb and a king who is alive and well. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, my friend, and he is risen, and he is risen indeed. And God, our Father, we love you, and we thank you for loving us, and we thank you for your gospel, the powerful gospel of Matthew gives us the evidence that we need to believe and, and, and gives us the power that we need through your word and through your son to, to have faith, to keep pressing on. And Father, we, we want to reflect upon the power of the resurrection because many of us, Lord, we, we don't feel it. We, we've let the cares of this world, we've, we've let sin infiltrate our hearts. We, we've, we've let there's the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life blind us from the power that's within us because of Christ. And if we are there this morning, Father, forgive us. 
Redeem us. Remind us of who we are through your Son. And help us, Father, as as the New Testament writers powerfully proclaim and they teach the church, we are to live in this power. And so the sin we're struggling with, the relationship that we're struggling with, the, the complaints, the sin, everything, we can overcome because your Son has overcome. And Father, I pray for this church. I thank you, Father, for the members that you've given us and the lives that you've given us and the visitors that you've given us. Lord, we will understand. It's a gift and an opportunity to partake and do the mission and work of God. And so I pray for my friends. I pray for my family members. I pray for our elders. I pray for our deacons. I pray for our staff. I pray for our small group teachers. I pray for our, our, our LLG leaders. I pray for our missions team. I pray for our hospitality. I pray for all of our ministry teams because, Lord, you have formed this team together to do the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's appropriate to us. And so we love you. We thank you for allowing us, God, to serve here at this church. And we pray all these things in the strong, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. At Covenant, we strive to provide a fellowship that is sound in doctrine, biblical in practice, and loving in our relationship with each other and the community. For more from our elders and teachers, please visit us at covenantbapt.org. That's covenantbapt.org for teachings, articles, and more information about our community.